Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Michael Herb at Georgia State University, author most recently of The Wages of Oil, Parliaments and Economic Development in Kuwait and the UAE. Uh, Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the wages of oil and uh, the, the questions around the way oil has shaped politics in the Gulf and kind of where that might be going now. Um, so walk us through kind of your, your, your understanding of how oil has shaped the politics of some of the states in the Gulf. Well, I think one of the things that I find is, is that oil doesn't shape the politics of countries in the Gulf in the same way, even though the two countries that I talk about the most, the United Arab Emirates and Kuwait, start off in very, very similar places. They're both have around a bit over a million uh, citizens each. They uh, both are um, Sunni Arab countries. They both have a great deal of oil amongst uh, the highest per capita uh, oil revenues uh, in the world. They both uh, had a similar uh, uh, history in terms of their involvement with Great Britain. And they're going in very, very different directions, which has, I think, to do with uh, things very specific to their historical experiences uh, in the past, well, since since uh, independence and just before. The, uh, today we see that the UAE uh, has uh, over 10 million people, uh, again, and just over a million citizens, so most of the people who live there are not citizens. Uh, it is, uh, Dubai is, uh, uh, has been a booming city. Uh, it's an entrepot in the true sense of the word. Uh, they <coughs> uh, have one of the largest uh, airlines in the world. Uh, Dubai is the uh, third busiest airport in the world in terms of uh, arrivals and departures, which is an amazing thing for a, for a uh, it, you know, it's clearly not the domestic market, which is uh, uh, supporting all that uh, traffic. Uh, it is... Uh, uh, it is the hub for uh, that part of the world, and that's a, uh, mm -hmm. a deliberate strategy by the ruler <coughs> of, uh, uh, and, and, and the ruling family of Dubai to build it into a uh, thriving logistics center, a thriving entrepot. Uh, and that involves a, a great deal of immigration. A lot of foreign workers uh, are required mm -hmm. to keep it going, and a lot of foreign visitors to keep its tourism industry going, and its uh, import and re-export business, which is extremely large. Uh, and it requires um, a lot of uh, office buildings and hotels and uh, apartment flats. And uh, all of that is uh, 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 generates a lot of uh, wealth, all that real estate development. And the ruling family is deeply involved in uh, real estate mm -hmm. development in, in Dubai. So in one way, you know, it is a it's a way to uh, the, the 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 a booming economy helps uh, the ruler and his personal finances. So so that's one path <coughs> to that's, to mm -hmm. dealing with uh, having all these oil revenues and oil rents. Uh, the other path is Kuwait. Uh, Kuwait um, has a parliament, and it that parliament places it has since 1962, when the uh, constitution was put in place immediately after independence and in response to a threat to invade the country from Iraq. Uh, the ruler put in place a, a constitution of a parliament. That parliament constrains the ruling family in ways that we simply don't find in the UAE or in any of the other Gulf states. And one of the ways it constrains it is 
through uh, the involvement of the ruling family in the economy, which isn't to say that there aren't places where the ruling, I mean, the ruling family is still rich. It still controls some land, and there is, there is uh, uh, involvement in the economy, but it is, in a, it is really, really different from the way it works in the rest of the Gulf, and especially in Dubai. And we see in recent years that the, the, mm -hmm. the separation between private land and public land is, is policed by the National Assembly, the elected parliament in Kuwait, and uh, that, that uh, prevents the, uh, the ruling family from uh, distributing any more the mm -hmm. land to itself. And uh, the, the, the state doesn't easily uh, allow land to be developed. So uh, the, uh, the uh, business owners, the capitalist class in, in Kuwait is uh, really quite grieved about this and uh, has spent, uh, invested a great deal of its money in places like Dubai. So, so, so this like variation, the, the way these two countries end up looking really different. I mean, it's interesting because this kind of classic rentier state theory uh, kind of has a very monocausal sense to it. This notion that oil, for whatever reason, tends to produce very unique and distinctive types of states and that they shouldn't diverge in the way that uh, that you've observed. Yeah, and I, I just, I, I don't think that, I think that oil has profound causal effects on any country which has the rents per capita of a place like uh, Kuwait or the UAE. Uh, so oil matters. I mean, the, the, it, it, it isn't a question of whether or not there's an effect of oil or not an effect of oil. The question is, is what are the causal pathways through which oil affects mm -hmm. politics and are those causal pathways similar across uh, different countries? And the thing is, is that in, in, if they're not, and, and there are ways in which they are in fact similar between Kuwait and the UAE, but you still get some very, very different outcomes in terms of big questions like how powerful is the parliament uh, and in what direction is the economy developing? And those are because oil, you know, oil comes, it has a profound effect, but it is, it, it interacts with, with variables that exist in the, the, the situation and those interactions can send, uh, uh, produce results which are really quite sharply different. And, Different oil I mean, and you draw a, a distinction in the book between like different kinds of rentier states. I, I mm -hmm. like this notion of the extreme rentiers, which um, you know you can't just like take anybody who has oil is the same. Mm -hmm. That there's something really, really unusual about these very small, uh, mostly Gulf states, and just the degree of uh, dependence on oil that you see there. So traditionally, at the, at the beginning of the, the the literature on the resource curse in the rentier state. The way that, that, that rentierism was measured was exports as a percentage of the economy. And the problem with that is, is that if the rest of your economy is very, very small, uh, then a little bit of oil will make you into a rentier state, even though the country might not be that rich. And the amount of oil per person is, is not enough to transform people's lives. It might transform the, 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 you know, the access of the regime to money, but it just, you know, in Nigeria, there isn't enough money really well off. In some states, however, and, and, and the same amount in a country like Canada, it just gets lost and, and we don't think of it as a rentier state because it's got so much else going on in its economy. In the extreme rentiers, in places like, you know, Brunei, the UAE, uh, Qatar, um, it is, it, the, the amount of oil per capita is, is, is enormous. It transforms everything. 
Uh, and, and I think it's important, you know, and then when we, when we go back and talk about the causal effects of oil, well, the causal effects of oil are going to be very different in a place where there's enough oil to uh, uh, affect how the, the, you know, the central state works, but not enough to get out to the villages much. Uh, there's, that's a very different situation from a place where oil is completely transformative of, of you know, it allows free healthcare, free education, a good developed world standard of living or more. Uh, and so, so it's, it's, when we talk about the impacts of oil, they're very likely they're going to be, they are different between those two different cases, as well as amongst cases mm -hmm. like that. So you take a case like uh, like Saudi Arabia, which kind of falls somewhere in the middle, lots mm -hmm. and lots of oil, but also not so tiny. Yeah, um, and so the 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 uh, it, yeah, and it will so so then you need to sort of like it it will be somewhere in between them. I think the uh, uh, some of the questions that are being asked about uh, the uh, vision twenty thirty and so forth. Are these questions, or the, the need for it is more pressing in Saudi Arabia because the population is larger and this uh, sort of implicit promise of a job for every citizen, which is certainly sustainable in Qatar uh, and in Kuwait for a while, isn't in Saudi Arabia. And so they need to address the problem sooner rather, so, certainly sooner than Qatar, which doesn't can yeah. go along how to, as it is now for a good long while. So, so suppose that um, suppose that Vision Twenty Thirty worked, and you saw the development of a sustainable middle class, uh, which is productive and engaged in international trade and finance and and all of that good stuff. How would that change uh, Saudi Arabia as a state? Uh, would it stop being a rentier state, even if it continued uh, exporting oil and deriving rents from that oil, or or, or the effects of the oil themselves so powerful that it basically is an impossible job. Well, you do see sometimes sometimes states grow out of their uh, <coughs> their their reliance on oil. Uh, it's a little bit easier when there's a little bit less oil. Uh, there are states out there, Indonesia, China used to export oil, uh, and uh, you know the the rest of the economy grows, and then everyone and it consumes mm -hmm. all the oil. If Nigeria were to grow. Uh, and its economy start booming, it would stop exporting oil entirely. It would just consume it all in house. That isn't in Saudi Arabia. Uh, if uh, you know, oil will still shape the economy. Uh, but on the other hand, there are countries which which grow through it and manage to transform their economies and aren't uh, as reliant on natural resource exports. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a hard, hard road to get there. That's not going to be an easy transformation. But as you as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, the UAE is maybe the model of a country that's really diversified away from from the export of energy into transport and finance and and real estate and all these other these other things. But what it hasn't transitioned away from is autocracy. And mm -hmm. so, in other words, you get diversification, but certainly not democratization. Well, the uh, uh there's a there's another part of that comparison that I'll come back to in a moment, but uh, in turn, you know, autocracy countries that develop economically sometimes manage to transition to democracy and sometimes don't. Uh, sometimes it takes them a long time. Uh, whether or not Saudi Arabia will will uh, I don't think that it's I, I I do think that Kuwait provides uh, some evidence that it is possible to have some 
democratic, strongly democratic elements within the autocratic regime, even in a context where oil you know, economy is entirely dependent upon oil. And I think that that is a, 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 an important reference point for the discussion of the potential for some greater political participation mm -hmm. in, in Saudi Arabia. So, uh, but it's also, I mean, if Saudi Arabia manages to make a transition, uh, I mean, they're not going to make a transition entirely away from oil, but to, but to build a, a non-oil economy, you know, it, is that going to lead to democracy? I mean, I, I am not, not in and of itself. It's not a, a, yeah. a, a reliable. I mean, in some ways, it's not that hard to understand why the rulers of UAE or Qatar who managed to you know, have an enormous amount of wealth um, would not choose to share that. I mean, that's one of the, the cores of Rantier's state theory is that no taxation or representation that, mm -hmm. um, you know, you empower a strong state, the state, you know, distributes those revenues and buys loyalty and all of that. I mean, that's not that difficult to understand how, how a strong state would do that. But then your book, you know, really does get into this question of, of Kuwait and why is Kuwait different? What is it that, uh, it, at least at some marginal level, uh, Kuwait has kind of escaped that dynamic by having these representative parliamentary institutions. Yeah, my argument essentially is is that they were uh, threatened by Iraq, and in response to that threat, yeah, Kuwait starts off. You mean in, in the sixties? You mean in the nineteen sixties, and then again in the nineteen nineties. Uh, <clears throat> two important episodes, and and I do some some you know, process tracing where I you sort of look at the causal uh, uh, set of events here, but. You know, Kuwait starts off in, at independence. It's this really small place that didn't make sense as a country to a lot of people. It looked like a family with some oil wells. Not too many countries made it into sovereign state status this way. And, and, and Iraq contested its, uh, its uh, status as a sovereign state, so they needed to, to, the ruling family needed to show that they, had, that, they had, that they were actually a country and deserved to be thought of as a country. Uh, and it, it, it's pretty clear that in reaction to the Iraqi threat, that the uh, ruling family, uh, led by the emir at the time, uh, <coughs> went far out of his way to try to uh, show to the world that he had support from Kuwaiti citizens. And one of the best ways to do that was to hold elections, have a parliament. Uh, and there are some examples of, of uh, some him sending out some uh, members of the Kuwaiti uh, merchant elite uh, and others who had, who had mm -hmm. uh, been pressing for uh, more political participation to, you know, on, on around capitals in the Arab world to try to uh, secure support for Kuwait's uh, independence. It was not a foregone conclusion it would join the UN or the Arab League, so it needed to, to get that assurance. Mm -hmm. When in the in the late 90s, or early late 80s, and then 1990, the uh, ruling family put in place a, uh, a, a much less, they, they, they took away most of the powers from the parliament, rewrote the constitution, put a, a much weaker parliament in place. Uh, and then the Iraqis invaded uh, and the, the ruling family was forced to uh, put, restore the 1962 mm -hmm. constitution. And ever since then, it's become a core part of Kuwaiti life. It would be hard, not impossible, but it would be very hard for the ruling family to get rid of it. There's sort of a path dependency. You set up a, a, an institution like that, you have elections, you set in place a uh, 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 long history of elections, it becomes part of national identity in Kuwait. Uh, it'd be very hard for the ruling family to really branch 
Well, the last few years, it's gotten pretty turbulent, though. A lot of like real tests of power between the parliament and the royal family, including over oil. Um, yes, and the uh, uh, and I think it's it partly a, it is one indication of the strength of the institution that has managed to survive all of this. Uh, the uh, and not in the ruling family hasn't shut it down, but there was uh, in twenty eleven uh, uh, the uh, the protesters uh, and the par and members of parliament forced out a prime minister, a member of the ruling family. The the, the precedent has been established, uh, effectively has been established. The precedent that the uh, prime minister's tenure in office really requires support from uh, a majority in parliament. Maybe not a fixed majority, but you know, there's the idea of a vote of confidence in mm -hmm. which the prime minister could be removed. Uh, it hasn't happened, but there have been votes, and one resigned. So, and that's an important, uh, I mean, it makes, it, it, it is a step towards a more democratic political system in Kuwait. Not democratic, but that, you know, you can, you can sort of see it sort of inching in that direction, and then there's mm -hmm. been some reversals as well recently. But the, the, the reversal that hasn't happened is, what happened in 1990 when the constitution is rewritten and the core powers of the parliament are removed. It still has those powers. Things have been going, there's a boycott. You know, it, it, uh, it's been turbulent, yeah. certainly, but the, the institution is still there. So, the, the, as of, you know, the, the time we're having this conversation, the price of oil has crept back up over $80 a barrel, mm -hmm. but uh, quite recently it was down below 40 and that's something which seems to be a real seems to have a disproportionate impact uh, on these kinds of rentier estates. If you have kind of an extended period of relatively low oil prices, how how did the states of the Gulf adapt to uh, this like very very sharp drop in, in the price of oil and the prospect that this might become a perennial feature of that they were going to have to deal with economically and politically. Um, mostly by making changes in, in, in the margin. Some of them are very significant changes, but it, it, they haven't, uh, they, they spend from their savings. They've raised prices of, uh, on energy, which has been something that has been clearly an enormous problem. They subsidize uh, uh, energy uh, to an enormous degree. Uh, and, and they've put some limits on that, and that's been really important. There's been some... Uh, some countries have imposed uh, a VAT tax, which collects some taxation, um, but they haven't done, uh, and they've and they've started steps towards uh, <coughs> uh, trying to limit the number. Some of them have started to limit the number, the amount of foreign labor in the country. And the foreign labor is uh, expensive. It is in most of the uh, Gulf countries. It's essentially a consumption item. Not so much in Dubai, where it. You know, the, the foreign labor contributes to the entrepreneurial economy. Uh, but in, in other countries, it is uh, people do things that could be done by citizens, and they're paid. They ship the money out of the country in the form of remittances. And it is, uh, and then it requires uh, all sorts of infrastructure and state spending to support that high number of people in the country. So there have been some uh, steps towards uh, reducing the amount of foreign labor as well. But the, the, none of them have really gone at the core, and I'm not, and I don't think they will, and I'm not saying that they ought to, but, but the core issue of spending a very large amount of money on salaries for state employees who are citizens, all the countries still do that, and there haven't been, uh, that, 
it's, it's, it's going to be hard to sustain that in the long term. So is the gamble basically that the prices will go back up and it's just a question of waiting it out? Or are they looking at a horizon of kind of the sun setting on this economic model? I don't think that, you know, some don't really have to worry as much, Qatar, for example. But, uh, you know, the ones that are, uh, uh, they aren't moving as fast as they need to if oil prices had stayed at 40. There's just no question of that. They would have been in serious trouble. Now that they're back up. So so to answer your question, yeah, I, th I think they do calculate that they don't need to, when, when the price of oil dips, they don't need to adjust to that they don't feel like they're going to make the changes that would be necessary to adjust to that on a permanent basis. That would be very hard. Which kind of brings us back, uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll conclude with this, um, brings us back to Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman's plans or you know intention of trying to carry out these fairly radical changes, which are presented very much as an attempt to transition uh, Saudi Arabia into a non-oil economy. And so, you know, when you look at that and look at those ambitions, I mean, what, what do you think? How, how do you how do you view this through the lens of this way you've been thinking about the wages of oil? Uh, the timeline is 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 uh, that has been proposed is simply unrealistic. But our, I think that one of the crucial measures of of change in Saudi Arabia is whether or not in the private sector economy they will continue to rely primarily on foreign as does Dubai, or the UAE more generally. Uh, and, and recently there have been uh, signs that the, the, the total, number of, uh, total amount of foreign labor in the country has decreased. That strikes me as probably the most important uh, measure of uh, Saudi movement towards uh, an economy that's built primarily on citizen labor. Uh, ultimately, Diversification in the UAE can occur with foreign labor and probably will, and it will just continue in that direction. Saudi Arabia is too big to diversify using primarily foreign labor. They need to employ citizens. They need to employ citizens productively, and they need to figure out how to employ them producing something that can generate hard currency that isn't oil. And the only, I, you know, the, the, it, it is going to be extraordinarily hard to do that if the private sector uh, is allowed to hire unlimited amounts of foreign labor uh, and not Saudi labor. So I think that, that the question of whose labor is used, citizen or non-citizen, in, in diversifying the economy is crucial in the Gulf. And I expect there will be two answers. Some countries are going to rely increasingly on citizens. In the UAE, maybe Qatar are going to go off in a different direction and keep, keep growing with uh, non-citizen labor. All right, we've been speaking with uh, Michael Herb of uh, Georgia State University, uh, author of The Wages of Oil, uh, which recently published by uh, Cornell University Press. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.